Most of the day, um, I work around plants and trees. I work at a wholesale nursery um, out west of Olathe, and so I'm in charge of keeping track of all the health of the plants and make sure that they're sellable and um, working day out outside, and, and it's just a great time to um, be out in God's creation. My name is Emily Frazier, and I've been going to Christ Community for three years. Even though sometimes we don't acknowledge that we work hard, we are a family. I work with some folks from Central America, so they're teaching me Spanish while I'm out there too. So it's kind of fun um, becoming bilingual and um, really becoming good friends with everyone there at work. Oftentimes we um, support each other. For example, I had a blood drive in honor of my sister in June and I had a couple of my coworkers come to that and I just felt, I just felt really awesome about that. And for a while there, there'd be a couple of weeks where I just wouldn't hear anything at all. Like I don't need a pat in the back every day, but I kind of came to realize, okay, you're not trying to please them. Like you're, you need to be working for, for God. Since I get up early, I get to um, miss most of the traffic and I also get to see the sunrise and it's just a good time to kind of collect my thoughts and um, pray and just get kind of ready for the day. So that's, that's a boost anyway. You know, growing up on the cattle ranch, it, to me, I've learned to be a better steward of the land and um, acknowledging that this was, God built this and I feel being out in the nursery with all the trees, knowing that, hey, you know, God created this, and this is something, a gift that we can give to customers in Kansas City, Topeka, Lawrence, um, to be able to share and keep that, um, that God's beauty, spread it around. There was uh, one line in that video that just really stood out to me. At one point, Emily is saying, I realize that I need to not be working for their approval, but I need to be working for God. You know, our bosses can really determine a lot about our work experience, can't they? You could be working in the most perfect job. It could be your dream job description with your dream paycheck and your dream amount of time to do other things that you want to do. But if your boss is a nightmare, you're going to hate that job, aren't you? Of course, the flip side is also true. If you're working in a job that's nowhere near your job description, doesn't really have anything to do with your training or your experience, it doesn't have anything to do with the amount of money you're hoping to make or where you saw your career going at this age, but if you have a good boss, if you work for a team that works together, all of a sudden that job is not so bad, is it? All of a sudden you want to try to overcome challenges as opposed to seeing them as proof that you shouldn't be working in the job you're working in. All of a sudden you want to work harder and honor your boss because of how much your boss supports and loves and cares for you. Our bosses determine a lot about our experience as workers. Now, given the fact that that's true, let me ask this question. What if God was your boss? What if God was your boss? Now, I know, I know. Even for church, that statement is pretty cheesy. You're probably sitting here thinking, look, I know I got an extra hour of sleep tonight, but just give me, just give me my bumper sticker and I'll be out of here. 
But this isn't just a question that we came up with for a Sunday morning because we needed to figure out something to talk about. This is a question that's actually deeply rooted in Scripture. In fact, in his letter to the church at Colossae, Paul talks about this. He talks about what it means to work with God in mind. Listen to what he says, Colossians 3, verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work heartily as for the Lord. You've probably heard that verse before. You've probably seen it like on a coffee mug or maybe pinned up on your coworker's cubicle or maybe it's in your cubicle. Work heartily for the Lord. We quote this all the time to like psych ourselves up for the work day, right? I'm going to work for the Lord today and I'm going to get through it. But for as often as we quote this verse, we probably very rarely understand how far-reaching the implications are of what it would mean to work for God. So what if God was your boss? Seriously. What if he was the one who sat in the corner office or was the foreman at your work site? What if he was the one who oversaw your household or ran point on the project that you were working on? What if God was your boss? Well, that's the question we're going to try to answer today. We're going to talk about today. Today, we're continuing a series called Neighborly Love. If you've been around for a while, you know that we have been in this series looking at what it means to love our neighbors. And we started a few weeks ago in Luke 10, looking at a story a lot of us know about a Samaritan man who stepped aside and helped somebody. And we saw in this story that Jesus told that we need to not just have compassion for our neighbors, but we need to have the capacity to actually do something about our compassion. And in week two, we saw, when we went all the way back to Genesis 1, that we have this ability to build capacity right in the design of who we are as humans. God has called us and designed us to be fruitful beings with the raw materials he has placed around us. And last week we saw that to love our neighbors, we need to love our neighborhood. In other words, we need to know the story of our neighborhood, which shapes the reality that our neighbors experience. This week, this week we're going to take all that foundational work we have been doing, and we're going to kind of put some meat on the skeleton. We're going to talk about what it means for when you clock into work tomorrow morning to love your neighbor and to work as if God is your boss. So what, what if God was your boss? What would it look like? What would change about your work, your next work shift, about the way you go about doing your work? Well, we're going to see together this morning that when God is your boss, he redefines the goal of your work. When God is your boss, he redefines the goal of your work. And we need that goal to be redefined real bad, don't we? Uh, there is a guy who used to own and operate a football team called the Oakland Raiders. And he had this motto. He ran his whole organization with this motto. And I think this so perfectly captures what we have been told is the goal of our work. And it is this, just win, baby. Just win, baby. Doesn't matter how you do it. Doesn't matter who you do it with. I don't really want to know the details. Just win, baby. Winning is all that matters. Isn't that such a perfect way to sum up the way we're told to work? Just win, baby. Every time we flip on our computer screen or roll up to the job site, every time our kids wake up, just win, baby. Even in our social lives, like when we're doing hobbies, just win, baby. Whatever it takes to win. And I mean, why else? If this wasn't our sentiment, why else would Richard Nixon order the illegal wiretapping of his opponent's headquarters leading up to an election? 
Why else would Volkswagen change the software in some of their cars rather than pay what it would cost them to bring their cars up to the standard of emissions? Just win, baby. I also had an example about the New England Patriots, but there's an elder here who is a Patriots fan, so I'm going to put that one aside because I like my job. <laughs> Just win, baby. Now, what do you notice? What do you notice about these examples? What do you notice about these examples? I mean, yeah, Richard Nixon won the election. Yeah, Volkswagen won in their quarterly reports for a long time. But it seems like, knowing what we know now, Just Win Baby actually stands directly opposed to winning, doesn't it? I mean, when we take the long-term view, if all we care about is winning at all costs, eventually we will not win. Which means we desperately need God to step in and redefine the goal of our work. We need something better than just win, baby, to guide us. So what if God was your boss? What would be the goal of your work if God was the one who was leading you in it? What we're going to see today, we're going to walk through something we talked about really briefly last week called the threefold bottom line. The threefold bottom line is going to help us organize. We're going to jump around in the book of Proverbs a little bit today, and it's going to help us organize what it means to work with God's goal for our work in mind. Okay, so there are three values in the threefold bottom line that guide us. And the first one is this, profit. Not like the Old Testament predicting the future kind of profit, but profit as in there's a plus sign next to the dollar amount on the bottom line at the end of the month. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, didn't you just finish saying that just win baby, pursuing profits at all costs is a bad thing? Well, yes, I did. But that doesn't make profits themselves inherently bad. In fact, when we read through the course of Scripture, we see exactly the opposite. We are encouraged to be people who add value, who gain profit in what we do. When Jesus told one of his really famous stories, another one, about how to live a life that is following him, that is submitted to his kingship. We call it the parable of the talents. And in this parable, a boss is going away on a journey and he leaves some money behind with some of his servants, with some of his employees, rather, and he says, you know, do something with that. And when he comes back, he finds that two of his servants have invested the money and gotten a really good return. But he also finds that one of his servants, out of fear, didn't do anything with the money. He didn't lose the principal, but he didn't do anything with it. Now, which of the servants were the ones the master praised? The ones who wisely invested what they were stewarding on behalf of the master and gained a profit. Profits, profits are a good thing. But you see, today, we've come to see profit as a four-letter word. And it's synonymous with greed, right? You can't have one without the other. And of course, of course in a broken system full of sinful people, there are going to be those in power who are going to abuse profits. But that also doesn't mean that profits themselves are bad. Let me give you an example. Earlier this week, Apple called in their quarterly earnings report, and they gave a, a report on actually their whole fiscal year, which just ended. And they reported that they made $53 billion in the last year, which makes me wonder, would they miss, it's just a small million is all I'm asking for, would they really miss that in $53 billion? It's not the point of the sermon, but that's where my mind is apparently. Now, they've done a lot of things with those profits, but part of what they were able to do was to create 9,000 new jobs in this past year. Again, very complex topic, but when people, when organizations, when businesses are profitable, they have a built capacity that helps them love their neighbor. 
And this is important at the household level too. Another word we can use to talk about profits is capacity. Is for us to leave space at the end of the month for us to set things aside in order to love our neighbors. We're going to talk about that later, more in depth later in this series. But profits are a good thing. They are not inherently bad. Having said that, there's a lot of ways that we can go about pursuing profits, right? I mean, how is it that we should think about being workers who work for God and grow profits in a godly way? Well, let me read a passage for you out of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5. Listen to this. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. You notice the two words that are juxtaposed here, diligent and hasty. These two words really kind of describe the two ways we can go about building profit, don't they? The hasty person is all about today, not thinking about tomorrow or the next day, not thinking about the tactics I use to build profits, how they will affect me in the future. This is what the hasty person is obsessed with. I'll give you a personal example of hasty decision-making. Every once in a while, as a month winds down, my wife and I will look at our family spending plan and we'll notice that we have a couple bucks left. It's never very much, and yet, so easily do I come up with all these great plans for how we're gonna spend that money on stuff we don't need, instead of to set it aside and to think about how we can use that to love our neighbor. This is haste. Hasty are those who don't think about what is coming or what could be coming next, but think only about today. The opposite of that and what God calls us to is diligence. The diligent worker takes the long view. The diligent worker is willing to give up a present good for a future better. The diligent worker is about small, consistent steps that over a long period of time build consistent and growing profits. And ironically, it's the diligent worker who doesn't feel the pressure of having to squeeze every single cent possible into this week or this month's bottom line. God calls us to diligence. He redefines how we pursue profits by saying we pursue profits with diligence because the plans of the diligent lead to abundance. And here's how we can think about diligence together. This is the way that I understand it anyways. I've told some of you before in other sermons about what, that I love to hike. Hiking is one of my favorite things to do. And I did this hike once. It was about two and a half miles. It wasn't very long, um, but it was 1,500 feet up by the end of it. So it was a lot of work going uphill, which is hard work. And I wasn't counting at that time, but I'm going to guess that it took us somewhere around 10,000 steps to get up to the top of that hike. And every single step was, the, was harder than the last. In fact, as we were getting deeper and deeper with the water, the weight of the water on our backs, and we're getting further and further into this hike, I could look back and see just 10 steps ago, I was right there. I'm really not getting, and as we got further and further in, 10 steps ago, I was right there. I'm not getting anywhere. For most of the hike, we didn't see the fruit of our hard labor until we took 10 more steps at the end of our hike, and we got to see this picture. Now, when we started that hike, we were way down in those trees in the bottom of that canyon. And we didn't get to the top of this hike because we can jump really high or because we hired a helicopter. We got to the top of this hike based on consistent, hard, but slow steps, diligent steps, 10,000 of them, that led us to here. This is the picture of a diligent worker 
who's not so obsessed with what can I accomplish in one jump, but what can I accomplish in 10,000 steps taken consistently? And this is how we ought to pursue prophets. And this got me to thinking this week. Which of these two words defines my work? Hasty or diligent? Am I a person who thinks only about the short term today or this week and not about what is to come? If I don't see the immediate payout in a project, do I start to cut corners on it or try to avoid it altogether? Or do I engage it with diligence, seeing that my work has inherent value? What about you? Does your work define by haste or by diligence? Because it is the, the plans of the diligent that lead to abundance. This is how God has prescribed for us to pursue profit in our work. But profit is only one-third of the equation. And that's very important for us to hear. There's probably no stronger break from our context, from just win baby, than saying profits are only worth one-third of the equation. I mean, what else is there besides profit? I'm so glad you asked. The second part to the threefold bottom line is people. It's people. In Genesis 1, two weeks ago, we saw that every single individual human being has inherent value because they bear the image of God. And yet, increasingly today, we have begun to see people as means to the end of winning. Whether they're coworkers, clients, customers, employers, employees, they're all just a means to get us where we want to go. And when a system of people comes together and interacts with others in that way, some really terrible practices can, can, can come out, can't they? And of course, we're not the first to get there. I want to read another passage from Proverbs, this, this time from chapter 11, which will help us see what it means to value people in our bottom line. This is Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. What's going on here? Well, the author is talking about a very common practice in his day, but nonetheless very evil practice. Um, today, most of our retail exchanges are done via some form of a cash register. The equivalent at this time is a scale. You would use it to weigh out the product that you're selling or if you're doing like currency exchange or something like that. Now the dishonest businessman or woman would weight the two sides of his or her scale differently. So that if somebody was paying for 10 pounds of a product, they might only be getting nine or nine and a half in return. If you've ever heard the phrase tipping the scales, this is where it comes from, this practice right here. Now, notice with me the word the author uses to describe how God feels about tipping the scales. He calls it, do you see, an abomination. Now, we live in a world, or in a time, rather, where superlatives are used like they're going out of style. So it's hard for us to capture something when this strong of a word is used. But if we trace it throughout Scripture, we understand what abomination means. Abomination is not used to describe every sin. There are some things in this world that God has almost a special visceral hatred towards. And when we see this word appear different times in the Old Testament, we see that applied to things like um, incest, rape, child sacrifice. 
The way God hates those things is the way God hates it when people are exploited or cheated by unjust scales. He calls it an abomination. Now, we could spend a whole sermon on that one point right there, and we're going to next week. So come back and listen to it. But let me step aside from this by saying, if you cheat your neighbor for unjust gain, you will pay for it. If you cheat your neighbor for unjust gain, you will pay for it. Now you say, well, that's cute, but I see all sorts of people out there who are regularly cheating their neighbors. And they seem to be doing just fine. Well, that's fair. I'll give you that. But before we let our experience undercut the authority of Scripture, let's try to understand what Proverbs is trying to do here. Proverbs is not a list of cause and effect laws. It's not an if this, then that. It functions more like a beware of dog sign. You ever see those? If you jump over this fence, there is a dog waiting for you who will not like that, is what the sign is saying. Now, if you jump over that fence, you could probably exist for a while in that yard. Depending on how agile you are, you might exist for a little while. But eventually, if you stay in that yard long enough, that dog's going to get you. So why would you want to hang out in that yard? Now, this is the same thing the author is saying about what it means to deal in a crooked manner with your neighbor. You might win for a little while, but eventually, as our examples from earlier showed us, that dog's going to get you. Because the way of crooked and treacherous dealings with your neighbor leads to destruction and disgrace. But luckily, there's another way. There's another way. You see, if an organization has at its core, or a family or a household has at its core, valuing inherently the worth of other people, their culture will be transformed. And there's a lot of ways you and I can engage that transformative work, but it will never be less than engaging people with integrity. Integrity, that word from verse 3 here. When we work for God, we are to pursue people. We are to engage people, rather, with integrity. You see, the people God delights in are not the people who maximize profit at whatever cost, but it's the people who are guided in their work by their integrity, by their justice, by their fairness, by prioritizing the fact that the people who they work with will get their due. You see, the way that pursuing people or engaging people with integrity will change the way we think about our bottom line are things like this. If people work overtime and they are due extra pay, I'm going to take a loss in the personnel line because that's what it costs to have integrity. If there's a product coming off of the production line that is not safe or not up to standard, I'm going to stop and restart production even if that means it's going to cost me something because we are guided not just by profit but by engaging people with integrity. You know, my wife's, uh, my wife's grandpa is a pretty successful businessman, and some of my favorite times are just sitting in his family room and hearing stories about what it was like to be the CEO of a pretty large organization. And when he looks back over his time, he will tell you, and he has told me, that his proudest accomplishment is not the money he made. His proudest accomplishment is not that he took this kind of dying company and made it flourish. His proudest accomplishment is that in, in the process of these things, he never, ever, ever gave his integrity away. He never used the opportunity to say sorry tomorrow to excuse the way he treated someone today. He never gave up his integrity. And he tells me, he tells me this phrase that he just always sought to live by. He said, you know, Mike, I've discovered that people can take anything away. Anything you make, anything you earn, anything you build, that can get taken away from you. But what can never be taken away from you is in your integrity. 
but you can give it away. And once it's gone, it is almost impossible to get it back. So what about you? What about us? Do we engage people with integrity in the way that we work, or do we see them as a means to an end for us to add to our bottom line? Who is our boss? You know, um, I get that this can be something we can scoff at and say, well, of course, you know, I go to church, I work with integrity, but we need to think about this really seriously because there are all sorts of industry standard practices going on out there that are just totally accepted as normal that are terrible, just like tipping the scales. For example, about 10 years ago, it was the industry standard in the lending world to give money to people who the lending institution knew could not pay them back. And 10 years later, we were still digging out of that mess. So, in your work, whether you're paid or unpaid, high or low on your org chart, what does it look like for you to follow God by working with integrity? Now, I get that there are all sorts of people in this room who are like an entry-level employee, temporary worker. You're not in a place where you can affect change to your whole organization by leading with integrity. So what about you? Well, for you, integrity manifests, and for all of us, in the, in the quality with which we work. Integrity manifests in doing the job right the first time, not cutting corners to avoid work. Integrity manifests in not passing the buck onto other employees for things that we have done wrong. You see, once you give your integrity away, you can almost never, ever get it back. And I know that there are people in here who may someday or have already or might be currently facing a situation where you have to choose between your integrity and your job. And that's a hard choice to make because you can't write integrity on a check and send it to the electrical company and expect your electricity to stay on. I get that. But once you've given your integrity away, it is almost impossible to give it back. When God is your boss, your bottom line is about pursuing profits with diligence and about pursuing or engaging people with integrity. But there's still only two pieces of the puzzle there. So what's the last part? The third part of our bottom line when we work for God as our boss is the planet. Is the planet. We pursue profits, people, and the planet. Um, two weeks ago, we saw God creating all things that were, that, that is, that are currently existing. We see God creating all things. And what were the two words, if you remember, that he used to describe his creation when it was finished? Good. Very good. Very good. His creation is very good. And last week in Genesis 2.15, we saw that we humans have been given a job description by God to work the garden and to keep the garden. In other words, to use the material, uh, raw materials of this world to create and be fruitful while maintaining the very goodness of God's creation. And historically, we've been pretty good at that first command and increasingly, we're struggling with that second one, aren't we? So what does it mean to value the planet in our bottom line? I think firstly, it means understanding this. Revelation 21 and 22 paints a picture for us. The last two chapters of the Bible paints a picture of what it will be like when it's all done. When the work God has done and is doing and will do is finished. And in that picture, we see the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven down to earth. Which means that, pop, uh, contrary to popular understandings, God is not just going to burn this all up. If we are in Christ, 
we will be living on this earth into eternity, which ought to change the way we think about how we treat this earth relative to our bottom line. So how does this affect the way that we treat creation? I think the difference can be in some ways explained or, or um, made into a metaphor by thinking about what it is to either rent or buy. If you're in a place that you are not planning to live in forever, and uh, you know my lease is up at this time, and when my lease is up, I'm out of here, you're probably not going to make a lot of sacrifices to the other parts of your bottom line to like build it up and to fix it up and to make it homey and make it you. But if you're staying in a place that has a more, should we say, indefinite timetable, well, you're much more likely to invest time and money and sweat equity into that place. You feel a sense of ownership for it, not just because you own it, because it's where, but because it's where you're going to be. And the same thing applies to our earth. If we know that we're going to be here into eternity, then it ought to change the way we think about what it is worth giving up for. And I get that valuing the planet as a part of our bottom line is expensive. I mean, it is, it's easier to not value the earth. But let me ask you this question. Does it show up in your bottom line? Does a value for this planet show up in your bottom line? Because God, when he is our boss, has called us to cultivate this planet with care. To cultivate it with care. He has told us not just to work it and get everything out of it that we possibly can, but to keep it, to care for it, to steward it, to take care of it, to cultivate it. So how do you steward the raw materials God has given you to work with in a way that reflects a value for this planet? So when we work for God, he redefines the goal of our work. And under his leadership, we reject this notion that we're just going to win at all costs. We're just going to make as much as we can. doesn't matter what the collateral is. And we engage, we, we trust in a threefold bottom line given to us by God to pursue profit with, with uh, diligence, to engage people with integrity, and to cultivate the planet with care. But before we finish this up this morning, there's one more word back in that really famous verse we quoted from Colossians that I want us to look at together. So listen as I read just one more time from Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Did you catch it? Inheritance. Not a paycheck. Not a benefits package. Not something you can earn but something that is given to you because of whose family you are in. God is not here looking for a bunch of employees for hire. God is here looking for a bunch of fatherless children to adopt. You see, the bosses of this world can only ever give us paychecks. And those aren't bad things. But in the end, it doesn't matter how many of those we accrue because ultimately we cannot take them with us into death and beyond. But what God, your Father, has offered you is something so much more than that. He has offered you an eternal inheritance that will last when the things of this world are destroyed. When the things of this world pass away, our inheritance will last. You see, so often we work for God's approval. But the reality is, and I think at some level we all know this, we could never, ever earn God's love for us. We could never earn his approval. We could never earn his acceptance. But when we understand 
that our acceptance is rooted in the finished work of his son, we can let go of the drive to earn his acceptance and we can begin to work from it. A peaceful thought. God is here looking for fatherless children to adopt. Wouldn't you want to work for a guy like that? I mean, after all he's done to bring us into, into his family, would he not be worth following in pursuing a threefold bottom line and pursuing not just profit, but people and the planet as well? And you can do this. You can work heartily as for the Lord because your inheritance, if you are in Christ, is safe now and for eternity. Let's pray together. God, you are the creator of all things. Your very word sustains life. You have the whole world in your hands. And you, God, have invited us not, not just to work for you, but to call you Father. You've invited us into an eternal inheritance we could never earn, but that you give freely to us. Who are we, God, that you would make such an invitation to us? You are worthy of our praise. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us as we go out from this place to not work for your acceptance, but from it, to be faithful workers pursuing what you have designed us to pursue so that we can build capacity to love our neighbors, to show them the love you have shown us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, before...